This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. On today's show, we're talking about how polar bears swim and how the Supreme Court impacts the free press. And if those things sound like they've got nothing in common, well, that's the idea. Joining us today is Blaine Griffin, a Red Sox fan and a fellow alumnus of Oregon State University who studies the human impact on natural systems. Hi, Blaine. Go Beavers. Thank you. Nice to be here. And also with us is Alada Gambrick-Lidze, a native of Georgia, that's the country, not the state, who studies political speech all over the world. Hey, Alada, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for inviting. Let's start today with the polar biologist. If you're from Denmark, Norway, Russia, Canada, or Alaska, you might recognize that sound. And it's probably not a sound you want to hear anywhere nearby because that is a polar bear roaring. It takes a lot of energy to roar like that. And energy is at the heart of the research recently published in the journal Polar Biology by our first guest, Blaine Griffin. He found that when polar ice melts, bears have to swim further to find food, and that comes at a metabolic cost that could impact polar bear populations. Blaine, I wanted to start today by talking about the remarkable journey of a bear called 20741 back in 2008. Who was 20741, and how did she first come to your attention? So this is a female bear, an adult, uh, that originally, when she was first captured, she had a cub with her. And there was a paper that was published back in 2011 that documented the amazing journey that she had taken. She took off in August from the north coast of Alaska, swimming out into the Beaufort Sea, and then she was recaptured two months later. Now, during the first capture, they had put a bunch of sensors on her, so we knew a lot of information about what she'd been doing in between these two captures. And it turned out that she swam for 687 kilometers over a nine-day period nonstop out into the center of the Beaufort Sea, arriving on some sea ice, and then uh, walking back to shore after that as the sea ice reformed. That's 420-something miles, right? I mean, that, that's amazing. Over nine days? Did I hear that right? Yeah, quite a swim. So that's a remarkable story, but you saw something in that that was more than just a great story. You saw this opportunity to use the data that was collected to better understand the different energy costs of walking versus swimming. Why is that important, and why was it important to you? Well, it's important because polar bears are energetically limited, and this is one of the main ways that climate change is impacting them. So polar bears have a relatively short period of time each year when they can find food and eat it really intensively and try and build up their body mass. And then for the rest of the year, they're basically fasting. They're, they're starving when the sea ice isn't available and their primary food item, which are seals, are therefore not available. And so as climate change progresses, it's basically shortening this window of time each year that polar bears have to eat. That's putting an energetic strain on them. So with this data from this polar bear, one of the things they measured was the internal body temperature of the, of the bear. We could take those temperatures and convert it into the metabolic cost or the energetic cost of swimming. And for the first time, really look at what are the impacts of these long distance swims on polar bears. Because one of the things that's been shown already is that as the ice melts earlier each year and as it forms later each year, 
polar bears are having to engage in these long-distance swims more and more frequently. And that takes a lot of energy. The, the energy difference, can you spell it out for us? How, how big is it between swimming and walking? Well, if we compare the two activities at the same rate, which I did at, at about three kilometers per hour, which is the average walking speed for a polar bear, it turns out that the energy required to swim a given distance is five times more than the energy that it would take to walk that same distance. Okay, so I'm thinking about this in terms of like a human, and I feel like I'm more efficient when I'm swimming because I'm more buoyant. I mean, what is the thing that makes polar bears so much less efficient? Well, you feel like you're more efficient at it, but if if you were to walk a mile and swim a mile, which one do you think you'd be more tired at 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 the end of it? It takes a lot of energy to swim. So polar bears aren't bad swimmers, they're just swimmers, and... That takes right, a lot of energy. They're actually pretty good swimmers. I mean, I, I can't swim for 687 kilometers over nine days. Now, come on. Have you tried? I haven't tried yet, and I may at some point, but I haven't. Well, polar bears aren't the only animals you've studied. You spent a really good part of your career studying crabs, right? Why, why crabs? Well, because my main interest is in understanding how marine animals primarily, how they respond to the environmental changes that are caused by humans. And crabs are found just about everywhere in every conceivable type of habitat. So they also experience the wide range of influences that humans cause on the environment. So you can find a crab that's ideal for just about every type of question that you want to ask when you look at human impacts on the environment. Regardless of the animal you're studying, it seems to me as I've been reading uh, literature that's got your name on it, that you've been increasingly turning your attention to examining energy costs. What makes energy such a good indicator for other things? Well, because basically we're all energetic animals, and whenever we experience a stress of any kind, there's a stress response that increases our energetic demands. And even if we don't have a stress on us at any given time, our ability to grow, our ability to reproduce, all these things are driven by the energy balance. If we have more energy than we need to survive, then we can put that into reproduction. If we have less energy than we need to survive, then we're going to die and the population's going to shrink. That's so dark. (laughs) I don't mean to study it in a dark way, but it's a really good way of taking lots of different types of impacts of humans on the environment and putting them all in the same type of currency so that we can compare across them. One of the things that struck me about the polar bear study is it was largely based on data that had been collected years earlier. How did you realize that there was more to be done with that data? And do you think there are a lot of other older biological data sets out there that could benefit from being pulled off the shelf and reexamined? Yeah, I, I do think that there are a lot of data out there that were collected for a specific purpose, and then they were put in a paper that answered the question that they were collected for. But there are so many other questions that we can ask with those data. And collecting scientific data is expensive, it's time-consuming, and so it's my view that we should use those data to their maximum extent possible and get the most out of them that we can. So with the polar bear, I realized that there was more of a story to be told with that data than was originally done because I read a a much older paper where they actually took polar bears and put them on enclosed treadmills and measured the heat that they gave off. No, they didn't. They actually did. And there was a really nice relationship. The more energy they expended, the more heat they gave off. And so I realized, okay, well, here's a study that measured the heat that was being produced by a polar bear, or at least its internal temperature. And so if I could use that to determine the heat given off, we could determine their energy that was being expended.
Blaine, you have the coolest job in the world. I'll agree with you. Thank you. <laughs> That's ocean ecologist Blaine Griffin. Blaine, will you stick around until the end of our show for a chat with our next guest? Absolutely. But the conduct of a judge surely does not become a judicial act merely on his own say-so. A judge is not free, like a loose cannon, to inflict indiscriminate damage whenever he announces that he is acting in his judicial capacity. That is the voice of the late Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, reading what was perhaps his most feisty and famous dissenting opinion in a 1978 case involving broad judicial immunity. And in that decision, he argued that a judge's actions away from the bench should have consequences. It's been 40 years since that case, and in a first-of-its-kind study, free speech researchers Tom Terry and Alada Gamrick-Lidze have analyzed the consequences of one of Justice Stewart's away-from-the-bench actions, a 1974 address at Yale Law School in which he argued that the press has special protections. So, Alada, Potter Stewart gave this speech, the speech that you and Professor Terry studied less than three months after the resignation of Richard Nixon. And in it, he talks about public opinion polls from that time, which suggested that many of Nixon's supporters believed in, and here I quote, an arrogant and irresponsible press. 40 years later, here we are again. Were the ways in which President Trump and his supporters talk about the press influential in your decision to pursue this topic? Yes, it certainly was. We have... Uh, administration that is pretty much as unhappy with the media as the Nixon's administration was. I don't think we can find any administration happy with the media. I, I guess if we did, then they wouldn't be doing their job, right? But when was the last time we heard about firing journalists and revoking broadcasting licenses and, and such? Uh, so yeah, that was one of the inspirations behind the study. So what sorts of special protections was Potter Stewart suggesting might exist for the press in the speech? Well, his major argument was that it's not a redundancy that the framers mentioned the press in the First Amendment. It is the only institution protected by the Constitution. So it has special role and this role should be acknowledged. And the speech that he gave, it's not a majority or even a dissenting opinion in a case. It was a speech to some college students. But you say there's precedence for the actions of justices outside of the court that influence case law. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Well, yes. Our major example was Warren and Brandeis' article on privacy, which came out outside of court that took decades to gain traction in the, in the common law and ultimately resulted in privacy torts that were not in the Constitution. What ends up happening is that ideas that come out of these speeches or these things that come, come outside of the court action find their way into legal arguments that go before federal judges and over time they get adopted again and again and become part of case law. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what happens. Judges and justices, they take different sources to argue their points, including scholarly articles or even newspaper stories, and including speeches and uh, other sources to argue their points. And um, ultimately, it comes out as a common law. 
So if Justice Ginsburg is listening right now, and I'm sure she is, she should really consider giving lots and lots of speeches. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Which she does. Which she does. And that ultimately, sometime down the road, could actually have an effect as much as their dissenting opinions and as much as majority opinions. Absolutely, yes. So let's talk a little bit about methodology. A lot of people have referenced the influence of this speech on the way people think about the freedom of the press, but no one had measured its impact on case law, which is what you set out to study. How did you go about that? It was pretty um, straightforward. We just looked up all the cases, just using internet, you know, it's a very useful tool. Finding all the cases that would mention or the press, which was easy because that's what the essay was called, the speech itself. And then we just zeroed down on federal cases because those are the ones that create precedent and looked through all 27 of them. What you found is that the speech has not only been cited a number of times in federal court rulings, but that it was actually gaining momentum for quite a while as a document that has been relied upon in court decisions and in deliberations. Well, yes, absolutely. It's just it's not always relied upon in the context that we were interested in. Surprisingly enough, it was used to argue against special protection for the media in just one area. There was one area that Potter Stewart did not allocate media special protections, which is news gathering process. So his argument was that in this particular area, the press doesn't have any specific rights. So the press cannot have any extra access or any particular access to places where public doesn't have access. Under Potter Stewart's framing of, of yes. this issue. So it's a, it was a nuanced speech, and it's been used in nuanced ways. So it was a nuanced part of the speech that was used in, I think, 11 cases out of the 27 that we looked at. So interestingly, there's been a pretty significant interruption in the use of this case since 2005. What happened around that time? Well, our educated guess was that the Supreme Court composition does matter. You know, ultimately, the Supreme Court is the highest authority in this area. So its composition um, matters in terms of justices tending to rule along the ideological lines. So having Roberts Court, which is primarily conservative, we wouldn't expect it to use oral the press in the context that Potter Stewart and and Roberts came along in 2005 as five. Chief, it's just five, five, four years after the last case that we looked at, yes. So if, and this does seem like a rather big if given the state of our union, more liberal justices regained the majority of the court, do you believe that Potter Stewart's influence on press-related case law would return? We totally think it's possible, yes. There are justices that rule and argue as swing votes. You know, you can't really predict how they will vote. And Potter Stewart is a good example of that because he was nominated by a Republican president, but he actually ruled liberal in a lot of cases. Your background is in international media analysis. How did you get so interested in seeing this evolving impact of one Supreme Court justice on case law in the United States? 
well, it's just this whole subject in general that that fascinates me as a you know it's coming from outside of the United States and the United States being the only country that has specific protections from for freedom of speech and and the press it was just so interesting to start looking at it and seeing how it works that's political speech policy researcher Alada Gamrick Lidze. Alada, are you ready to talk about something completely different? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so this is my favorite part of the show, the introductions. Alada, this is Blaine. He's a biologist who has been studying polar bears. And Blaine, this is Alada. She's a communications researcher who investigates political speech. Hi, Blaine. Hi, Alada. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Blaine, let me start with you. You were listening into my conversation with Alada about the way in which she dug into case law to see something that nobody had seen before. Did that spark an idea or create a question for you? Well, it's at its basis, that seems what scientists do as well, right? I mean, we're, we're all looking for things that, uh, that no one has done before, a way to, to look at the world that is fresh and, and can give us new insights. I think there's certainly a, a connection there in terms of how we approach things. A lot of when Blaine was telling us about his work, we talked about how he had learned something quite fascinating about polar bears by going back over data collected years earlier. Did you relate to that? Yes, because that's pretty much what we did. It was data collected over uh, some time. It was 74 when Stewart made the speech, and um, we looked at all the cases that were ruled on uh, since then, you know? So yeah, absolutely, it, it was relatable. <laughs> So I was I was very fascinated by this uh, idea of comments by a justice not from the bench being uh, used to, to sway law in the future and trying to connect that with what happens in science as well as, as scientists make comments that sometimes are taken out of context, sometimes not, sometimes they just are used in ways that the scientists never intended for them to be used uh, in order to sway public opinion or to, to influence the direction of things. Oh, yes, absolutely. I actually, um, while I was listening to uh, Blaine's conversation with, with you, I, I, I thought of one thing that, I don't know, uh, maybe Blaine already thought about, but with the, all these increased energy burns in polar bears and them having to swim longer distances because of the melting ice, I was wondering, evolutionary, sometime, like, maybe centuries down the road. Do you think it might have effect on the way polar bears look or their size or the way they find food or the things they eat? Sure, that's that's a good question. So the way that they, they look and the way they behave and, and the way they act today is certainly an, an evolutionary consequence of the experiences that they've had and the environment that they've experienced in the past. And so we should expect that the current environment will also have impacts on the future. The question is is really for polar bears. You said uh, hundreds of years in, in the future. That the question is, will they be around at that point to, yeah, to uh, you know, for us to be able to see how they look? Because their environment is just changing so rapidly that that's the question is, is how long will they last? Not unlike the, the things that you're looking at, where, where our social environment is changing so quickly, uh, how long can the rules and the, the regulations that are put in place by, by the, the courts, how long can those last and, and be pertinent to society, right? 
Well, yeah, those are constantly changing. But the thing is that uh, all these rulings, at least in a sense of constitutional law, they, they rely on the founding document that has uh, survived centuries and uh, probably will survive many, many, many more centuries. Do you, do you think so? I mean, like, there's so much uh, what I hear in this conversation on both sides, and this is fascinating, is this sort of almost this chaos theory thing where like a little change can spark bigger changes and bigger changes over time. Knowing what a, a little change can do to, to impact case law, to impact an entire species, like how do we even make a guess? Like as researchers, how do you even project forward a few hundred years knowing what you know about how small changes can make huge, huge effects? It's very hard. I mean, you can create models and based on what you have at hand. But again, like you said, any change can change what you have at hand. So, you know, just make your best guess based on what you have gathered. But like I said, I mean, something that's on paper, at least to me, seems more tangible <laughs> than melting ice. Like you have more control over it because people created it, whereas melting ice is something how... Oh, uh, we created the melting ice too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did, but we didn't create the ice, so we don't know how it behaves. Blaine, what's your best well, guess? I, I think, oh, go ahead. I think that's a good point. So the the point that Alana made there is, is based on what we have at hand. And, and when we start to make projections in natural systems as to what, what is going to look like in the future as a result of human intervention, we can only make those predictions based on the knowledge we have at hand, what we've experienced in the past. And the thing is that we're changing the world so rapidly in ways that they're so vastly different from anything that's existed in the past that it really raises the question of, can we use our experience from the past to intelligently project into the future? Or is the future just going to be so different that none of our knowledge from the past really informs what we can expect in the future. So if you're making your best guess, what do you think? Polar bear still around in 300 years? Not unless humans drastically change their current course of action. Yeah. That said, I, I prefer to keep a hope that they will adjust like, you know, a lot of species did. <laughs> Maybe they will look different, but they will be still there. Well, Blaine, you study both uh, large animals and considerably smaller animals. Do larger animals have a bigger challenge evolving to changing conditions quickly? I don't know that they have a, a bigger challenge responding quickly, but the larger the organism, the more resources it needs, right? So if, if I'm looking at a crab that's very small, it can survive on fewer resources in a smaller space. You scale up to a larger organism and it just needs a larger range with more resources, and therefore it's more likely to run into limitations and it's more likely to run into conflicts with humans and, and things like that. And a lot of the U.S. Constitution obviously looms large over our political world and has been very influential to the rest of the world with our very quickly changing society. The way we communicate is very different now than it was when the framers constructed the First Amendment. Is it just too large to change quickly? Well, one, I think, good thing about Constitution, you can argue if it's good or bad, but I think in current environment, it probably is good because it is quite vague. So the whole job of the judiciary system is to be able to interpret this document. And a lot of the uh, judiciary thinks that it's an evolving document. Like, it's a living document that 
can be interpreted in the context of current environment. So whatever changes we are experiencing with technological advances and changing in political situation and uh, you know everything, how we communicate and how things work, constitution can totally be interpreted in this context. I mean, there are people who say it should be read as it is written, and that makes it hard to adjust to the current environment. But I think there's some flexibility in there, and and it's good that it's so vast and and broad. Sounds like to me that we have a similar situation where, as I look at the natural environment and, and we scale it up to something very large like the world, there's a lot of inertia going forward that's difficult to change. And it sounds like you're saying a similar thing in social or political systems where we've got this inertia of this large thing from the historical past and, and trying to change it is difficult because the past is going to influence how we interpret those changes moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that in mind, I'd like to thank both of you for joining us today on Undisciplined. Blaine Griffin, thank you so much. Sure, thank you. And Alada Gamrick Leedze, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. The Undisciplined Science Show is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thank you for listening. Now go have big ideas.